This morning, our passage is Psalm 51. Please turn there in your Bibles with me to Psalm 51. Last week, we saw how the Psalms are like a magnificent piece of music that your ears may listen to, but your heart goes with it. And our prayer is that this morning, as we hear Psalm 51, our heart would also go with the words of the psalm, that with David, we would cry out to confess our sins, to find renewal in God, our Savior. You may remember in 2 Samuel chapter 12, the prophet Nathan came to David, confronting him with his sin, and he told him a parable. There's a poor man and a rich man in a city, and the poor man had one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. And it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. The rich man had many sheep. And the rich man had a visitor one day who came into town and the rich man was unwilling to sacrifice one of his own sheep. And so he went and took that one precious ewe lamb from the poor man and prepared it to eat for his guest. Nathan told this parable to King David. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. You remember what Nathan said to David, you are the man. David had committed grievous sin. He had, as Nathan said, despised the Lord. He had killed Uriah the Hittite He took his wife, Bathsheba, for himself. Psalm 51 was written as David was coming to grips with the offense of his sin. He even said that whoever did this deserves to die. This psalm hardly needs introduction. So many of you have probably prayed it already in moments of sorrow over your sins. And it serves us well, once again, to direct our hearts into the depths of confession and renewal of repentance and faith here in God's word. So let's pray that God would be with us as we read Psalm 51. Gracious God, we pray that you would help us to receive in this passage words of life, forgiveness of sins, and the restoration of our broken souls as we face our sin again. Would your spirit Prick our hearts, convict us of how we are wrong, and show us how to move forward in obedience. Would these be words of life to natural people? Would they be spiritual truth to those who otherwise would be dead? Would the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer? Amen. Hear God's word from Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. 
and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. We're going to look at this passage in four parts. Largely, it's how it's been divided in the ESV. The first two verses are the foundation of forgiveness. Verses 3 through 6, then, are the need for forgiveness. 7 through 12 are the renewal of forgiveness And verses 13 through 19 are the response to forgiveness. Foundation of forgiveness, need for forgiveness, renewal of forgiveness, and the response to forgiveness. The foundation of forgiveness we see in verses 1 and 2. First of all, forgiveness is needed because David has reiterated three times here the transgressions, the iniquity, the sin of man. And in light of that, What is it that could offer forgiveness but mercy alone? It's God's mercy. And it's that to which he appeals first. He says, have mercy on me, O God. This mercy is to be gracious, to show favor, to have pity. The famous benediction from number six says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. That word gracious there is the same word that David is asking for here. Have mercy upon me. Be gracious to me. Show favor to me. Have pity on me. In the face of his sin, David is asking for God's goodness toward him. He's asking for protection. He's asking for undeserved favor. He's asking for God's face of blessing. He's asking for peace. He doesn't deserve a single one of these things. It's a bold request to come as someone who has done such grievous things and to say, Lord, I am asking for your goodness. Because the only thing he deserves in this moment is the punishment for his sin. David appeals to God's mercy according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. 
This steadfast love is a common word throughout the Old Testament with deep implications. The steadfast love is God's faithfulness to his covenant commitment. When he makes a covenant with his people, he is faithful to them, period. That is steadfast love. No matter what they've done, it is unconditional to the nth degree. Walt Kaiser defines it as the riches of God's grace in the heart of God. That's his steadfast love, the riches of his grace in the heart of God. And being that deeply rooted, it cannot be shaken. And when he asks for abundant mercy, Hebrews, interesting, these, these words are very flexible. And they can mean a variety of things. The same thing that he's asking for, or the, the word abundant mercy that he's asking for is the same word as womb. And it means this tender care, this compassion like a womb that cares for the growing baby and nurtures. This is the kind of concern that God shows for his covenant people out of his steadfast love. And he does it strictly because of his goodness. His steadfast love that he has promised to those who share the faith of Abraham. He keeps his promises. He nurtures them. He has compassion on them. And David asks exactly for this. This isn't just a one-off thing. Where David hopes he catches God on a good day. This is the character of our God. This gives us a glimpse into who God is. He desires to show mercy, Micah 7, 18 says. He says, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. God delights in steadfast love. This is his character. He so loved his people from all over the world that he designed and implemented and accomplished redemption to remedy the brokenness that we created. We see this display of the character of God throughout the Old Testament with his patience as he revealed himself more and more to wayward people that they might see the fullness of his steadfast love in Jesus Because this steadfast love and this abundant mercy, this tender compassion, this graciousness that David asks for, they culminate in Jesus Christ, in his death and in his resurrection. That is where forgiveness of sins comes from. 1 John chapter 1 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from sin. Our sins are forgiven in Jesus That steadfast love of God comes to us in Jesus. The sacrifices that David was accustomed to, these these sacrifices of bulls and rams and goats, they were powerless to wash away sin. Hebrews 10 tells us it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, but they did serve as a reminder of the sacrifice that was needed to cover sins. They reminded the people of God's patience and steadfast love with them as they anticipated that glorious grace in Jesus and his sacrifice. David realized how egregious his offense was and that it was sin and that it was going to take far more than the blood of an animal to pay for his offense against his God and against the hurt that he has caused against his neighbor. He knew that God had to be the one to do something about it. 
And he knew that God, out of consistency in his character, in his steadfast love, was going to provide a way to purify for his sins. With all this effort that God has put into reconciling us to himself, why do we come so often expecting a merciless sadist, a God who enjoys inflicting pain on the sinners? When you confess your sin, remember, God delights to give forgiveness. He wants you to come covered in the blood of Christ so that he can blot out your transgressions, wash you thoroughly from your iniquity and cleanse you from your sin because of his mercy, because of his steadfast love. This is the foundation of forgiveness. It's entirely unmerited. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. It's the merciful compassion of God rooted not in any merit, not in any ratio of good works to bad works. It's based entirely upon God's grace and it's enacted in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is to this that David appeals and it is to Christ that all of us look for the forgiveness of our sins. That's the foundation of forgiveness. Let's look now at the need for forgiveness in verses three through six. This passage tells us six very specific things about sin. First, it tells us that sin is personal. Sin is personal. David says in verse three, for I know my transgressions. He's emphasizing himself and he's not just doing introspection to focus on himself, but it's because it's he's realizing how real the sin is to him and that it clings to him. I know my transgressions. I see it. And in such a state, he says in verse four, I am an offense against God. It's David and God. It's person to person. Sin is personal because verse four says against you, you only have I sinned. Of course, this doesn't downplay the hurt that we cause against others when we sin against them. But sin by definition is against a holy God. It violates his commands. And it is an affront to his holiness. And when we do so, we hurt others so deeply. If we fail to see that how we wrong others is a violation of God's name, then we've already started down the fool's path that downplays sin and pretends like it's not a big deal. Each and every sin does hurt others. And each and every sin is a violation against God. And it shows either that we do not conform to the law of God or that we outright have violated his law. Every sin is against the infinite God. And so David, in this remarkable sin, which created indescribable pain for the family of Uriah, indescribable scarring for Bathsheba, he had sinned in these things against God. And the horrible effects of David's sin for Uriah and for his family and for Bathsheba, they actually can be better understood to be deeper rooted because we see it wasn't just person to person, human to human. It was David violating personally his eternal God. He had broken the good life-filled commands of God himself. And he must give account for this sin. In terms of eternity, this is personal between David and God because sin is personal. We also see in verse four that sin is evil. 
David says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Have you ever heard your own voice say out loud, I have sinned? Or fill in the blank, I have done blank. Have you ever heard your own lips utter, I have done evil? It's sobering. It cuts deep. That's a large part of why we confess our sins together here as a church. To hear our voices articulate what we have done. It hits home. For David, this is a moment when his view of himself hasn't crumbled entirely. He's not trying to confess his sin in a way that makes him look bad, but not too bad. You know how we do that. We confess just the right sins that make us look like we're holy for confessing our sins. He isn't trying to preserve any dignity. David isn't trying to make any excuses. He says it like it is. I have done what is evil in your sight. He admits he has aligned himself with Satan. He has done the deeds of wickedness. In the light of the fact that this is a personal offense against God, and now this is an evil offense against God, to be on the side of evil only shows us how magnificent and undeserved that forgiveness is and how strong that foundation of mercy must be to forgive people like us. Because sin is evil. And sin deserves judgment, we see in verse 4. He says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Taking those two lines together, they they accent one another. and, And it shows David knows that his evil offense against God deserves wrath. David assumes that God is just. He's not asking for God to withhold justice. He expects God to uphold justice against his wrongdoing. And when God doles out the wrath deserved for his sin, David admits, your wrath and your verdict against me are justified. You're blameless. You can do this absolutely. You and I are so quick to ask God to judge other people for their sins. And we're so quick to think that we deserve an excuse of some kind. But there is clarity and there's truth and just being honest with ourselves about our sin as David was. We don't deserve an ounce of a break. If God were to rain down wrath from heaven upon sinners right now, he is entirely justified. We can say nothing in response. No one has an excuse. The wages of sin is death, even eternal death in hell, where the fire of punishment never goes out. Sin deserves judgment. We also see that sin is original. We see that in verse 5. David says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not just recalling those specific things he has done. Now he's thinking about the core problem. This sin is original. The sin of Adam and Eve is passed to every single person who is born by natural generation, us included. David doesn't mention this to just give an excuse. He's not trying to get out of it saying, oh, it's just who I am. No, what he's saying is, look how vast the difference is between how holy our God is. And how deeply sinful I am from the beginning. This isn't just a blip on the radar of David's ledger. This is inherent to his being. Even from the womb, he was sinful and guilty. He's not what the world calls a good person who happens to do bad things. No, he understands that sin is original. And his guilt comes from Adam. 
And we also see by contrast that sin is also active. We see that David has said, David says, I have sinned. He has added now, contributed to the guilt that he inherited out of his active sin. We see also in verse 6 that sin is deep. In verse 6, David changes his focus back to what God desires in verse 6. He's, he's no longer listing the arguments against himself. Instead, he begins to remind himself of the hope that comes with forgiveness at the deepest of levels. He asks God to make him able to live in truth and in wisdom. All these matters address the heart of hearts of a person, the core of your being. David says, in the inward being and in the secret heart. He's speaking of those deepest, darkest, scariest parts of your heart that even you are afraid to venture into. But what does God do? He doesn't avoid those spots. He delights to bring truth to even such a place as this. He teaches wisdom in the vilest of vile hearts. And this shows us just how deep God's transforming forgiveness goes. Shows us how powerful the blood of Christ is to cleanse the whole being all the way down to the core. Not a single sin is accepted. Not a single one is excluded. When a sinner comes and puts faith in Christ and has his sins washed away. Forgiveness is comprehensive and exhaustive. The blood of Jesus forgives us of all sin. Remember, all these things show us the need for forgiveness because of how bad sin is. That just reminds us of how firm that foundation of mercy must be for sin to be this bad and for forgiveness still to be offered out of this mercy. To deal with sin that is so personal and evil and embedded and active and worthy of judgment. What a steadfast love God must have underlying all this mercy. What a compassion God must have to see his people brought to completion. I don't know if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon or seen a large, deep cavern or stood at the edge of a gorge. You look down from the top and it looks deep. As soon as you start hiking down, it's a different story. You get deeper and deeper. You see how the trail winds, zigzags, and you're, you're going down. You're venturing into the depths of the cliffs foot by foot. You get to the bottom and you look up. And you acquire an appreciation for how far down you've gone. You start to understand how high the rim is. And you start to see the distance between the river bottom and the heights of the peaks. And so it is with our sin. When you venture into the depths of sin and you see the massive depths of your unworthiness and your vileness and the evil and your offense against God, then you have an appreciation for the distance that Christ bridges for you. You have an appreciation of how big that grace is. Mercy grows with every step you take deeper into the ravine of seeing your sin. Gratitude for God's love for you increases as you keep glancing back up, saying, God, do you even love me this far? And then when you stand at the bottom and you look up, you begin to see how far God has come to rescue a sinner like you and like me. That need for forgiveness is deep. 
The grace that rises to the challenge to forgive sinners like you and me is even deeper. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the need for forgiveness. Let's now look at the renewal of forgiveness. The renewal of forgiveness. David is crying out. He's looking at all the things that he's broken and he's asking God to fix these things for him. It's beyond what he's capable of repairing. He is confessing his sin and it leads to renewal. And he emphasizes here in verses 7 through 12, he emphasizes dirt and filth. He says, purge me, wash me, blot out, cleanse, create a clean heart. All these words are referring to a ritual cleansing which may not sound very warm and fuzzy on the surface. I understand that. This word blot out has to do with being unclean. Uh, So does wash and so does hyssop and cleanse. Uh, But this word blot out in particular, we see it in verses 1 and 9. It means to remove the memory of someone or something from a written book. So if a name is written down or if a curse is written down, these are two things that we see in the Old Testament. They are blotted out. The memory is erased. And so David is asking God to blot out, to wash away the memory of, and the record of his sin. And the word wash in verses 2 and verses 7, this is referring to the ceremonial washing of garments in order to be clean to participate in society and to participate in the temple. And the word hyssop and the word cleanse me also carry such ritual uh, connotations, ceremonial connotations. Uh, I'll read you this summary from a uh, theologian. He's kind of summarizing how David's plea connects with this ritual um, understanding. He says, David prays that the Lord, like a priest, may cleanse him from his defilement. The unclean, such as lepers, used to present themselves before the priest on the occasion of their purification. The priest, being satisfied that the unclean person had met the requirements for purification, would take a bunch of hyssop and sprinkle the person with water in the symbolic act of ritual cleansing. Here, David petitions the Lord to be his priest by taking the hyssop and declaring him cleansed from all sin. To be made clean, what David is asking for, is to enter again into the community of God's people and into communion with God and to have your sins removed. That's the language. And it shows us how dirty we are on our own and how much we need God to cleanse us. And that word hyssop actually carries another very powerful connection in the Old Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, um, specifically the time of the Passover, you'll remember the Israelites brushed the blood of the lamb over the doors. It was specifically hyssop that was used to brush that blood over the doors. David is remembering that he needs the blood of the lamb. He needs the blood of another, the perfect one to save him from the death he deserves. His faith is that God will provide, that God will renew. And so he makes such a plea that that God would hear this cry as a pleasing aroma. He's asking God to cleanse him because he can't do it on his own. He needs perfect blood on his behalf. As he's asking for this renewal and this cleansing, he's also asking for restoration of joy. In verse 8, he says, let me hear joy and gladness. And he also says, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. 
And in verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And verse 12, also uphold me with a willing spirit. At another psalm, in Psalm 32, David described what it felt like when he didn't confess his sin. When he wasn't forgiven, he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. That's what happens to us when we let our sin sit and fester in our souls. And in contrast with the metaphor of broken bones, David asks for joy to be restored to his life. Now, this may include for you, you know, the cheering of the heart, like when you hear that your long-delayed flight is finally going to board. But there's also a deeper sense of joy. This is resting in God. And it means taking hold of His promises and finding life in Him. I went to the grocery store last week, and I found some hanging baskets of ferns on clearance. For months, they've sat outside outside the grocery store in the heat with minimal watering and they were overcrowded. They weren't very healthy. And now that two of them have been brought to our home, they have been hanging in a place where they're watered regularly. They have the right amount of sunlight and they have room to branch out and grow. Already now, it's just been about a week. They're so much healthier. The brown spots, either we pruned them or they're falling away and the plants have new growth. They're filling out. They're almost lush. And all this is entirely from outside themselves. The water that refreshes them and the forgiveness that restores us, that restores joy to us, it comes from elsewhere and it's a blessing to dried up, wasting sinners like us. If you feel like your spiritual walk is dry or distant, maybe you have unconfessed sin. Maybe there are things in the way a wedge that you're letting remain. That's often the reason that we stop growing closer to God. We fail to receive the healing that forgiveness brings. What's implied in David's request is he's asking to be rooted in godliness, in a place where he can grow and flourish. And that is the only place where life and joy and renewal can be found. It's in God and in his ways and in his righteousness. David has found that his sin leaves him with a rotten feeling in his soul. You know that feeling. He has experienced what Psalm 1 means when it says, the way of the wicked will perish. And he longs to live again in the truth that the righteous man will take delight in the law of the Lord. And he longs to meditate on God's law day and night. And he wants to be again like that tree planted by streams of water. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. That's the renewal that David asks for, even in light of his sin. And he also prays for a right spirit. He prays for a pure heart in verse 10. He prays for a right or a steadfast spirit in verse 10 as well. He prays for God's presence in verse 11, and specifically that the Holy Spirit would not leave him in verse 11, and then he asks for a willing spirit from God. Here he's getting down to the, the core. He must be transformed in the forgiveness at the heart level. This can't be a whitewashing of a tomb. This can't be an external cleansing alone. He must be changed at the deepest levels. This internal change of heart then is what leads a believer into greater holiness. Next time sin threatens to undo us. It's a change from inside. That phrase, take not your Holy Spirit from me in verse 11, is uh, worth attention for a moment. 
Because uh, some hear that and wonder, does that mean that God might take his spirit from believers? I think one theologian says it best. Here's, here's how he puts it. These verses, remembering this is a psalm, a, a cry, a lament, a, pen, a penitential uh, song, psalm. These verses say little about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, but they say a lot about the necessity of spiritual renewal. This isn't a statement on pneumatology. This is like a child who was caught in the act of breaking his parents' rules. And as the reality of his disobedience dawned upon him, he was crushed by the realization of his offense and he just begged his parents not to kick him out of the house. It indicates primarily that offenders need the presence of God and their forgiveness. God does not take his presence from his children. In this renewal that David asks for, that we also can find... We have to remember the foundation once again. It's all because of God's mercy. When we cry out, fix what I've broken, it's all because of his goodness. And God has given us the chance to be, to find this renewal through our confession. We're promised in 1 John 1, 9, as we heard earlier in the service, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession, as John says, is walking in the light. He says, but if we walk in the light, he is as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Notice that the fellowship with one another is also a blessing when we confess our sins. Restoration to one another is also a blessing in this confession. And that implies, along with James 5, that confessing our sins to one another is a part of Christian growth. Having people in the church that we trust to share with. When we fail to face our sin with someone else from the body of Christ, and when we fail to hear words of forgiveness on the lips of somebody else, and when we fail to have that accountability, we're setting ourselves up for spiritual drying out, for wasting away. It's a blessing here in the church to confess our sins to one another, confess our sins, even our sins against God, and to find renewal of forgiveness in His mercy. What then is the response once you've been forgiven? How do we move forward? Well, first of all, David talks about teaching others in verse 13. Now that he has found that renewal and forgiveness, he says, I can then teach others. This quote here describes what happens to someone who experiences forgiveness. It says, the sinner who has experienced a deep sense of his own sinfulness the forgiveness of God and the sweetness of restored joy shows concern for others because you understand them now. You understand them better. You've been there. You know what forgiveness is like and you want to lead them there to drink of these refreshing waters of God's mercy as well. And once we have been forgiven, we also can forgive others. And I think that's a part of David's teaching others is by forgiving them as well. When we have been forgiven, we then can forgive. Think of forgiveness in this way. To forgive is to absorb into yourself the action done against you, along with all payments of wrongdoing as a result. Jesus didn't just take our sin and then help us to pay for it. He took our sin and paid for it, holding nothing against us in return. When we forgive, we absorb all the wrong done against us. And if damage was done to us, 
we absorb that cost too. And we don't hold it against them. We don't slowly over time hold it against the other person little by little until we feel like they've paid for it. That's a loan. Forgiveness isn't a loan. We don't expect any payment back from the ones who have wronged us when we forgive them because the Lord has expected nothing back from us as he has forgiven us. It's a clearing of guilt. It's taking on their debt and it's paying it ourselves. It's how we've been forgiven and it's how we forgive. How else do we respond when we've been forgiven? David tells us in verses 14 through 16, we praise. He talks about his deliverance from blood guilt and that leads him to praise. Blood guilt either means that somebody is is guilty of spilling someone's blood or someone has committed such an error that now their blood is required for payment. Either way, the person who has tasted this grace of God in life cannot but praise him for this new opportunity to live. Aren't we all in need of deliverance from blood guilt of both kinds? Because on the one hand, we're guilty of the blood of Jesus, our sins, sacrificed him. On the other hand, blood is required of us. The death penalty demanded for our sins. We are all guilty. We all need to be delivered from blood guilt. Yet Jesus, who was not only the blameless one, he was was not blood guilty. He's the one who is just and the justifier of those who trust in him. He paid that penalty. And David calls this God, O God of my salvation. And it's directly from what Christ has done that salvation comes. God alone can save David from himself. God alone can save us from ourselves. God is the one who saves, is, as David says, my God. God of my salvation. He is God of your salvation. So our praise then to this God of salvation comes from sincere, a sincere, broken heart from gratitude, not in an attempt to cover up or to earn favor by going through the motions. David says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The issue is a heart issue. These last two verses show us that one more response to this forgiveness is the restoration of worship. Because David's sin had messed up not just his personal walk with the Lord, but also that of the nation. His sins are and his guilt are in a real way that of the nation having corrupted Israel. Therefore, the psalm ends with a cry for the restoration of the worship of the nation. This is a plea that God would fill Mount Zion, the place of his presence, and that he would again put his presence there. This is a plea that worship may again resume because of the gracious restoration of joy by God, that God would commune with his people and meet them to bless them again. And so when we gather and worship, it's a reminder that we too have been forgiven of grievous, deep sins. And it's only in forgiveness that we can come and worship him. And all this takes root in the heart. Verse 17 famous verse says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Is your spirit broken over your sin? Or does it harden you against God? Does your sin make you contrite? That is, does it make you remorseful? Does it make you sorrowful? Does it humble you? Or does it embolden you to do it again? 
Remember, there's no external motion that you can perform to ward off the punishment due for sin. Forgiveness is found only by those who are broken and humbled to the core, who weep over the hurt that they've caused to others and the sin that they've offended against their God. Forgiveness is given to those who by faith acknowledge their filth and ask that God would fix it by the blood of Jesus. And all this, let's remember that foundation again, the mercy of God, the grace of God. When God graciously confronts you with your sin, it probably won't be by a prophet like Nathan, but instead he does it by his Holy Spirit. He does it through his word. Maybe even now God is convicting you of your sin. And when he graciously confronts you with that, cry out with David. All these words of Psalm 51, he's invited you to come in faith and to say, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Plead the blood of Christ before your God and there find forgiveness and life. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, who are we that you would be mindful of us? You have held out your hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Would we no longer be stubborn in our sin, but would we be willing every day to confess our sin to you, to confess our sins with one another and to find forgiveness in Jesus, to find that healing we might have a glimpse of this life that we share with you forever. For those who have not believed, would you work faith in them to see this free gift? And for those who believe, would you remind us of it every day? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.